0: Join us next week for Revolutionary Couples Therapy. Hello and welcome to the 32nd episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Sunday the 1st of December 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We finally start the boss-level final chapter that is Chapter 9, Republican Democracy, and descend into a long discussion on the merits of bourgeois liberties. This week I have the new Patreon, Swedish Tanky to thank. If you too would like to help keep the good ship Alpha afloat, why not join the Patreon gang-gang from only $5 a month or $1 an episode? You get access to all the special Patreon-only bonus episodes, the right to vote on the Reading Group series and other cool stuff too. The latest Patreon-only episode is due to drop in a few days, so watch out for that. It's a discussion on Marx and Engels' concept of the party with Lawrence Parker. If you're interested in helping me produce and edit the show, hit me up on Twitter or Facebook. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel and make sure to like, subscribe and share. Okay, to the discussion. We have just the regulars here today. Who will we start with? Let's start in reverse alphabetical, geographical, horoscopical order. And let's go with the jewel-headed beast that is Lex Soph.
1: (laughs) Hey, uh, this is uh, Lexi. This is Sophie (laughs) in a post-brunch haze in Arizona.
0: Is, is Sophie asleep? Is she snoring, or is that some... Kind no, of...
1: I'm a vicious beast. Yeah, we have a ravenous beast here, like a like Ooh. a raven.
0: <gasps> Excellent. <Yeah>. Moving. <laughs> yes, exactly. Moving on to Lord of the Surf's himself, all the way over here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus.
2: Tom. That's a second idea yeah. that
0: joke. I know it's a good one. It's got legs. It keeps going. <laughs> you. How's it going? It's going good, Tom. How are you? I I do think that'd be a good name though for a podcast Lord of the Surfs. Oh maybe. my god. No, I, I, might, I might are have you to rename
2: reactionary on us. I might <laughs> have to <a laughs>
0: rename from Alpha to Omega, seriously.
2: <laughs> oh god. Okay, this is the last uh, parent the okay. reading group,
0: uh <laughs> on Emancipation <a> <laughs> network new. No. We have, yeah. we have a Lord of the Surfs. Lord of the Surfs. <laughs> and I want like me to be wearing like tight felt trousers. And like oh my a right no. top, and maybe a felt green hat with a feather in it. Uh, that I'm holding
2: there. Yeah, yeah. If you don't actually wear this, it's going to be kind of upset. Actually,
1: yeah. This might split the party. <laughs>
0: might split the party <laughs> into groups of less than one. Okay, <laughs> now and finally, we also have Kyle. Kyle, how's it going?
3: Uh, all right, I'm still here in Calgary.
0: Are you up for some revolutionary patience?
3: Oh yeah, so much patience. I, I've I've got enough patience to finish the series.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it reminds me of a bad joke somebody said. Uh, I wanted to be a, a doctor, but I but I didn't have the patience. That's a good joke, that one. Okay, that's my dad wow. joke for the day. Okay, <laughs> I don't know why I got for that one. Okay, now. <laughs> <laughs>
4: that, that was a that was prime dad joke. Yeah. It was. That's
0: the content we need. Puya just right. sounded like Puya came there with, when he figured out that joke there. Oh it my god! Like, up uh, there,
2: Sport.
0: For... Puya. Oh your god. camera's on as well. Oh, is it really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I'm in a dark room. <laughs> such was such was the ejaculation. Now, <laughs> oh. let's start here. Rip. Let's go over and start with Sophie.
2: I began this book with the argument that it was necessary to go back over the strategic debates of the past in order to go forward and effectively address strategy now. The primary focus of the book has been to attempt to understand critically the various strategic choices made by socialists between 150 and 80 years ago, rather than choosing uncritically one or another side of the old debates as often occurs with the left today. It is necessary to follow the former course because those choices have led up to the defeats, demoralization, and disorientation that currently affects the socialist movement internationally. There are also, in reality, live political choices today. This has been reflected throughout the book. The fundamental choice between the perspective of self-emancipation of the working class or, alternatively, Forms of utopian or ethical socialism was posed openly in the 2006 strategy debate in the LCR by the arguments of Artu and Durand. It is posed in British politics and elsewhere by both Eurocommunists and Green Socialism. The coalitionist policy of the right wing of the Second International has been, since 1945, the policy of the Second International Socialists and official communists alike. The substance difference between them before first Eurocommunism and then the fall of the USSR was that official communists proposed for each country a socialist liberal coalition that would commit to geopolitical formal neutrality combined with friendly relations with the Soviet bloc, a policy sometimes called finlandization by the parties of the right. With Soviet sheet anchor gone, the majority of the former official communists are at best disoriented and at worst, form the right wing of the of governing coalitions, as is the case with the ex-communists and ex-fellow travelers within the Labour
1: Party in Britain. I would say the main point is that, you know, just summarizing the overall look at the book, you know, there's uh, not really that many strategies over the years. And, the you know, the thing that I think maybe remains to be, like, proven is that, you know, these are live political choices today. But the point being that the... Right-wing, and that's just what he's talking about here. Right-wing takes a couple forms. What used to differentiate the official Communist Party right-wing, the uh, Finlandization, quote-unquote. I I like that term. That's kind of fallen apart. And so what's understated here is that, like, these forms of utopian and ethical socialism that are a shortcut to the self-emancipation of the working class are truly, they're an alternative. It's not self-emancipation at that point. Those need to be rejected in however form that we find them. So whatever kind of right-wing, you know, coalitionist strategy, Mm -hmm. whether it has a a Moscow heritage or that of, you know, your national social democratic party needs to be rejected. I do think of these as like,
2: maybe not perfectly, in every like country and situation but i do think of these as live political choices like for example in the us like the dsa strategy of like entering the democratic party like that's that's like right-wing coalitionism for sure and so how how do we deal with that is kind of one of the things that this book is about but that's really all this is just really summarizing like the basic gist of the book
0: lexi how do you feel you take the mass strategy mass
1: strike strategy The Bakuninist general strike strategy descended into the mass strike strategy of the left wing of the Second International. The direct inheritors of this policy are today's collectivist anarchists and advocates of direct action and movementism. But its indirect inheritors are the Trotskyists. The Trotskyist idea of a transitional method is that consciousness must change in struggle on the basis of present consciousness. Trotskyists imagine that partial trade union, etc. struggles can be led into a generalized challenge to the capitalist state. And in the course of that challenge, the Trotskyists could guide the movement to the seizure of power in the form of all power to the Soviets in spite of their marginal numbers before the crisis breaks out. Taken together, with the Trotskyists' extreme bureaucratic centralism and various secretive and frontist tactics. This policy amounts almost exactly to the policy of Bakunin and the Bakuninists in 1870 through 1873. It has had almost as little success as the Bakuninists' projects. Before 1991, the Trotskyists could more or less plausibly account for this failure by the dominance in the global workers' movement of the Soviet bureaucracy and hence of official communism. Since 1991, the global political collapse of the latter has left the Trotskyists without this excuse. Without the Soviet Union and official communism to their right, the Trotskyists have proved to be politically rudderless. To say this is not to reject in principle mass strikes or one day general strikes or even insurrectionary general strikes. The point is that these tactics, which might be appropriate under various conditions, do not amount to a strategy for workers' power and socialism. Socialists should certainly not oppose spontaneous movements of this sort that may arise in the course of the class struggle, but rather fight within them. As Jack Conrad's 2006 Weekly Worker Series on the 1926 general strike explains, for a political alternative, to the current capitalist regime.
0: Okay. It's saying that the Trotskyists are essentially anarchists. Who would it thunk? Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: so... Anarchists will hate you forever, Tom. Congratulations. Well, I mean, like, you know, for a lot of this book, I, th- I was thinking that, like, the... I don't know, the, the main orienting axis of left, right, and center was the Second International. But here, I mean... And I mean, or or the first international, which actually included anarchists. But here, you know, he's kind of getting it so that he's arranging things just so, so that he can make a direct parallel between the first international with the anarchists on the left and the third international with the Trotskyists on the left, which, you know, isn't necessarily inadmissible. It doesn't totally, it's not like it undermines his point necessarily. It's just something that I hadn't noticed up until now. And I've been reading this book quite a bit.
0: He's, he's saying that like the the Trotskyists idea of how that things will happen in the end kind of descends into a kind of a, a mass strike policy of the old far left is that what he's saying in practice that's what it really means
1: yeah and what he's not saying and maybe it's because he doesn't have the requisite experience with new left Maoists which I somehow doubt but Trotskyists did sort of win the alter Leninist generation of the new left, whereas in somewhere like the United States, Maoists took up that heading. There's plenty of anti-revisionists that behave in the same way. And many people just associate this as, you know, Leninism, you know, full stop, that you have a secret society or semi-secret society, you pretend to be other things, and then Once the moment is ripe, you know, there will be a big overgrowth. You know, people that want, I don't know, no cuts to education, you know, or, you know, people that want, you know, stop gentrification now. It'll just turn into an insurrection or or something.
4: I brought this up with Kyle and Tom earlier, but there was a general strike here in um, Spain yesterday. Uh, Did you hear about that, Lexi?
1: And no, like, like a real
4: ass general strike. Yeah, it was like half a million people.
1: thats,
2: that's
1: awesome. a pretty big one, right? I mean, sounds good to me. Yeah, that's
2: better than the so-called general strikes we've had here for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I,
4: it was in Catalonia, but it was kind of separatist. I—I I mean, I just wanted to get your two cents on it, if you had any, if you had one
1: you know like i don't know what the population is so is it a general sh- is it a successful general strike i don't i don't know you know for the area like maybe that's a pitiful turnout you know what i mean i mean it was mostly it's it- it's a significant
3: fraction we we checked out what the population of the metropolitan region was and it's okay. it's significant
4: yeah it's like yeah. i think there is 7 million people in catalonia so that's like what well, okay. uh, a 14th of a population
1: yeah, that's that's not insignificant. Well, basically what I'm asking is relative to the other, you know, general strikes that have been tried over the last, I don't know, 40 years, you know, how does it compare? Or maybe probably 30 years. Let's cut it off after Franco. That's 7.24857
0: 7. recurring percent. Just oh, that's that everything, Tom. You're
1: welcome. <laughs> Think uh, about that recurring <laughs> person. They go on forever.
0: Anyway. Oh yeah, but God. it's a one- 7.42857142857142857 repeating. Okay.
2: Tom, you're such a nerd. I, I think when it comes to mass strike, though, back to serious talk. Um, oh, I thought we were I talking kinda...
0: about mass strike. Oh, shit. Oh, sorry.
2: Tom, oh, sorry. Oh, my Tom. Oh, my you... you
1: said one dad joke. Yeah. We gave you, uh, we gave you your dad joke ration, okay? You no know more. A mass strike doesn't propose a political alternative to the present regime if you live in a place where there are kind of big protests regularly, it starts to feel like clockwork, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know that everyone's going to go home or maybe there'll be an occupation for a couple of days, but after that, everyone's going to go home. And the next day, the same government will be there more or less like every so often a mass, you know, a big mass strike gets some demands met and I don't want to, shit on that and that's why he's saying hey you know we can't rule these out tactically but as a strategy this is an illusion
4: like it's only one day there's no like way to maintain that momentum and it's not a way to express
2: workers interests in the long run there i say uh, playing devil's advocate right so let's say uh you know i don't think we need a political alternative you know I think we just need to, like, build our own society and ignore the state or or just get rid of it. You know, we don't need a political alternative. Why can't we just keep having these spontaneous outbursts until we build up enough momentum to smash the state?
4: And I also think that to have a general strike, you need to be, like, fairly organized. There needs to be, like, some way to
0: coordinate all these people. It should be totally unplanned. It should be (laughs) Every time you do it, nobody knows what's going on, so it'll take <laughs> a number of weeks to figure out some decent processes. Um somebody posts a elements. thing on
3: Twitter, mass yeah. strike happens, it's we serendipity. Should,
0: that wasn't that's have, not like a joke.
1: Like you know, I mean it is, but
0: you know, some people take like that, that seriously. Like I remember what happened when I went to the first day of Occupy in London, right? Like literally five or six thousand people maybe even more turned up outside of St. Paul's Cathedral and everybody got there and everybody sat down (laughs) and everybody was like, right, what next? And then obviously like there was a corner at the steps like maybe 15 yards away from where I was sitting where the leaders were. And they started like twiddling their hands and doing hand stuff. And they'd obviously like been people who'd been involved (laughs) with stuff. And so like it took ages for Shit to start happening, and right. eventually the whole thing was just basically run by some anarchists, you know. Yeah, and it wasn't organizationless, but it took a while for people to figure out who was organizing what and doing what. But it was like a total, total rubbish, you know. It's a but, complete well, facade of, I don't know, spontaneity or something.
1: Well, but arguably, if there was like a greater sort of, I don't know, strategic bent to a movement. Something like that could play a role in some greater project, as dumb as it seems. But by itself, it's that's clearly going to go nowhere.
2: Well,
0: there's
1: also the kind
2: of building off the point Puya made earlier about um, you know needing needing like a lot of organization and stuff like that. I think earlier in the book there was some quote by Angles to the effect of you know if you're having like if you have enough resources to have a, a a good mass strike for a sustained period. You should just do the damn thing. I think that was Kowski. Was it Kowski? Yeah,
3: that's that's Kowski's essay on the mass strike, yeah.
0: Yeah, look, I, I just think about it like well, I just think you need to be organized at every level of society. And you can't just leave out the political because you don't like it. Like th- I think the analysis of like the fact that Russia went bad is that politics is the problem, is wrong. Like if you take a historical material approach, it's obvious if russia was as developed as germany was the outcome would have been largely different do we all agree with that it would
2: be different yeah
0: yeah 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 and so like the problem is not a politics or a party the problem was the state of their economy and the backwardness and they were going to have to develop it somehow so what did they decide to do they didn't go capitalism they went hardcore weird ass stalin madness you know and that that's the problem as opposed to the fact that there is a party or not. I think that's just the general critique that a Marxist should make.
4: Well, I think McNair here, he says, socials should not oppose spontaneous movements of a sorts that may arise in the course of a class struggle. So I think that he acknowledges that a mass strike...
0: He sees it as a tactic and not a strategy. That's what he's yeah, saying. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. Like, if it's, like, you have a party, and the party is strong, and they decide to have a mass strike, then it's, like, it's worth its money, or it's worth its time. <laughs> yeah. It,
0: it It's a tactic that may, may be good at a particular time or not, depending on the conditions. But that yeah. shouldn't mean you don't have a party.
1: I mean, like, the reason that people start to develop a sympathy for a mass strike strategy as opposed to just tactics is especially without the workers' movement, but even in the heyday of the workers' movement, the unlikelihood that, you know, there's going to be something put together by, you know, politicos in the meantime, in between these big outbursts, that's going to be a liberatory vehicle. Uh, McNair wrote an article recently, and the title was Containing the Workers' Movement in Safe Forms. Now, there's a sympathetic way to read it, and there's like an unsympathetic way to read it. <laughs> Just the title that like, you know, politicos in advance want to make sure that whatever spontaneous energy comes out can be, you know, directed in the ways that they think is best and, you know, is, is going to be like of, of maximal, of maximal effectiveness and, you know, will achieve the desired result and all these things that I think on paper I like, but you know, I, I don't know, experiencing, especially the left without the workers movement. But you can see with, you know, reformist social democracy, and with Leninism that this can be a problem, even when there is a workers movement, and you had like fairly serious mass political traditions. So I do think there's a big motivation for like like, there's like a hunger for this mass strike strategy, more so than maybe it it's, makes so much sense. It's
2: not usually a, a thing of logic. That's totally correct. Like, there's only uh, one person I can think of that are. It's like, rationally trying to defend mass strikes as a strat- that I have seen is trying to defend mass strikes as a strategy. Usually, what I see is like anarchists who just kind of have a romantic hope that you know, if we keep throwing the spontaneous ball at the wall, it'll eventually crack. You know, what I was trying to get at is like, why would anybody take this seriously as a strategy for taking power? There's nothing wrong with a mass strike as such, but as like a means for taking power, I don't see how anyone could logically
1: back that as a strategy. Well, you, you maybe you can use the chaos to have a Blanquist coup, and that is kind of where Leninism, not just Trotskyism, right, um, and you know Bakuninism have some overlap. And I don't know if it's fair to pin this Bakuninist thing on Rosa Luxemburg, but certainly like. There was a moment, like, when the mass strike and syndicalism, these things, even as a tactic, you know, had to be defended by Luxembourg and others. Like, somebody like Kautsky was opposed to the mass strike as a tactic. He thought it was a waste of resources.
2: That, that's, that's, that was my question, is, like, how much is Rosa Luxembourg defending the mass strike as a strategy for taking power?
4: Wait, what is uh, Kautsky's argument
1: against the mass strike as a tactic? Either you're going to demonstrate your weakness by not sustaining the strike, or if you have the kind of resources to pull together a mass strike, you can get like more lasting change out of that organization instead of like, you know, like flexing your power at the existing government, you could be orienting towards taking power.
3: If you can successfully execute a mass strike and find a way to provide the resources necessary to sustain the strikers, then the Kowski's argument is basically like you already have the power necessary to take take power. So why are you having a mass strike?
2: I think the thing that's being missed here, though, is that like that, that Kowski's missing is that like you don't necessarily have to sustain a strike for a long time for it to be worth it to get, like, certain demands met.
4: Yeah, I was about to say, like, a couple-day mass strike, or, like, a one-day mass strike, you know, you, that's probably not as much resources as t- taking power, <laughs> and that's... you could probably get some stuff done that's, like...
1: that you want to yeah, get yeah. done.
3: <laughs> Which oh, is well, why I think, like, McNair is basically uh, saying that it's acceptable as a tactic.
1: So, the, the only other thing is that the. Trotskyists tried to account for the failure of revolutionary strategy because of, you know, the existence of the Soviet bureaucracy and of official communism. And if only they were out of the way, then we would have the chance for spontaneous agency to build the movement. You know what I mean? When with the fall of the Soviet Union, you could see that that's like clearly not true in a way reminds me of the anti-political argument. That, you know, with the official left out of the way, we, we would have, you know, the right kind of spontaneous agency that would come up. And I do th- consider the official left rather toxic, kind of like I, you know, would think the, you know, Euro communist parties or what, or what have you that the Trotskyists are talking about or toxic in a way. And a lot of people in the middle of a social movement are like, oh, man, yeah, we will go there if, if we want to die. If we wanted to go do that, we would have done it before. some of us have and realize it was a dead end and now we're here. We don't want anything to do with like those type of things. Like when you're in those actual moments, people have a deep distrust of political institutions or organs that are, you think of themselves as, well, we're ready to contain the workers movement. We're ready to contain the movement. Like there's a deep distrust of those things that, I mean, I, I think McNair, imagines that you'll get out of it by being an active builder in the movement up until that point.
2: Right. And, it, and I think like, maybe if you're doing like a lot of like good, you know, mutual aid projects kind of, or like, you know, some kind of like friendly societies, like the SP day were back in the day, maybe then you'll earn workers trust. But like, I think uh, we live in a very different time. Like You're right. Like I, I can't imagine ever being in like a spontaneous kind of rabble rousing moment where people are like oh yeah like let's go into these official organs of the political left and like be a part of that you know like that nobody thinks that way anymore you know so like what, i don't remember what it was exactly oh you were talking about his article of like containing the workers challenging the workers into safe ways or whatever forms forms yeah like that really strikes me as like a, one of the biggest flaws of mcnair is in his over political He's like the the opposite of the anti-politicals in a way, where they're both yeah. kind of wrong, but for very different
0: reasons. I just want to say one quick thing as well, like about the, the Trot strategy. I said it before a number of times, but it's this idea that like, you know, we'll get the workers on our side when we see how well we fall for them and it'll be revolutionary. And it's like in Ireland, they, they got this stock privatization of water. And what happened? Nothing. And and those are Trotskyists that actually
1: have been like trying to trying to do something for... The public in whatever politically constrained way they're doing it. And I guarantee you at the next like mass uprising, those trots are, are, you know, going to be lepers, you know, no one's going to want to touch them, right? There's no necessary connection between having social authority during these moments when the proletariat goes into action, and the kind of politics that you actually, you know, can do between the lulls. The, the, the politics that you can actually do right now between the lulls is not very engaged and even I don't I don't know how engaged the public was in defending water privatization or excuse me in opposing water privatization and assuming it was engaged even still the next uprising will probably not have you know and then the trots you know were able to leverage their authority from fighting water privatization into an alternative state
0: yeah okay. They literally got half of the population not to allow the the water meters to be put into their properties. It's pretty okay. impressive
1: that's very significant, so th- that's like and that's using you know mass politics in the era of anti politics in order to do something that has you know majority support like how however you slice it, and
0: that that momentum is petered out by now, probably. But you know what will happen is that people, as they got more involved in it, they would get burnt by the politics of the actual truck groups when they get into it. You know, I just know. I don't know the specifics, but I can guarantee you that's what's happened. No, that's quite right. And that's illustrative of the
1: point that the forums that Politico set up for, okay, look, on paper, fucking really good points, you know, about this mass strike strategy kind of not being enough. And you want to set up the political alternative to bourgeois rule, you know, before shit kicks off. But then, like, the, I don't know, just the kind of organizational drift you get in these things. And then the horrible, radical traditions that they inherit. Yeah, that shit is toxic. And we'll, we'll, we'll do attrition on the population they're supposed to be earning the trust of. It's, it's a
0: hard nut to crack. Let's move it on. Uh, Kyle, do you want to read this Kautskyism section?
3: Sure. Uh, Kautskyism. Chapter three on the strategy of the Kautskian center may appear to first be merely historical. After all, the Kautskian center, after its reunification of the right in 1923, collapsed into the coalitionist right. And after fascism in Italy, Nazism in Germany and 1939 to 45 it left behind virtually no trace in the parties of the Socialist International. However, this was not the end of the story. In the first place, much of Kautskyism was reflected in the more constructive part of the politics of the common term. And from there, in a more limited way, in the more constructive part of the politics of Trotskyism. Second, although the post-war official communist parties were coalitionist in their political aspirations, their attachment to the USSR meant the socialist parties and left bourgeois parties generally refused to enter left coalitions with them. The result was that the communist parties were forced in practice to act as rather less democratic Kowalskiian parties. In doing so, they could promote a sort of class political consciousness and a sort of internationalism, and this could provide a considerable strengthening of the workers' movement. In this sense, Kautskyism means the struggle for an independent workers' party intimately linked to independent workers' media, trade unions, cooperatives, and so on, and for, at least symbolic, internationalism. It also means the struggle against the ideas of shortcuts to power that evade the problem of winning a majority through either coalitionism or conning the working class into taking power via the mass strike. These are positive lessons for today's left. But there are negative lessons, too. The Kautskians fostered the illusion of taking hold of and using the existing bureaucratic coercive state. They turned the idea of the democratic republic in the hands of Marx and Engels, the immediate alternative to this state, into a synonym for rule of law constitutionalism. The national horizons of their strategy help support the feeding of the working class into the mincing machine of war and so did their belief that unity in a single party was indispensable, even if it came at the price of giving the coalitionist right-wing a veto. The statist rule of law and nationalist commitments shared by the Kautskian center and the coalitionist right meant that they collapsed ignominiously in the face of Italian fascism and German Nazism. This lesson has been repeated over and over again in the colonial third world. In the imperialist countries, Since the first impulse of the post-war settlement began to fade, the electoral cycle has repeatedly produced weaker reformist governments that ended disillusionment, the temporary rise of the far-right and the victory of further center-right governments. These two are live political issues at the present date. The large majority of the existing left uses nationalist arguments and seeks to take hold of and use the existing bureaucratic coercive state machinery. The idea that unity of the broad movement is essential, even if this means that the pro-capitalist right wing is given a veto, is the essence of the French socialist left's decision to stick with the right rather than unify the opponents of the EU constitutional treaty, and of uh, Rifondazione's 2006 decision to go into Prodi's Unione government in Italy. Uh, In both cases, the results have been clearly disastrous.
0: Now, I just want to go back up to a little bit up here where he talked about how Kautskyism basically left no trace except, he said, in some of the more constructive part of the politics of the common turn. What constructive parts is he talking about here?
1: So on on that chapter on the common turn, he abstracts the concept of a party of activists as an alternative to thinking of the vanguard party as being like the positive lessons from the common turns theses. And, and and then he also basically says that Lenin's polemic called left-wing communism and infantile disorder from 1920 is more or less like a centrist Kautskian tract.
2: wasn't McNair like super critical of most of the 21 theses.
1: M- many of them. Yeah. But he ends that chapter, you know, defending the concept of the party of activists oh okay yeah. you know the reason that he's defending this is because he accepts the split from the loyalist right. uh, social Democrats right that are going to give state and capital a veto mm-hmm. over revolutionary politics which I think he's correct to do that right but then he's stuck in this situation where in almost all these scenarios the workers don't follow the Communists and splitting off from the right. And so you know now that you know you've don't really have a mass party, maybe then what? Yeah, and and then the the parts about Trotskyism is the seems like I guess the Pabloites and the Mandalites that he's giving a pass the the Stalinophilic Trotskyists.
0: He he talks here as well like about the existing left using nationalist arguments and taking hold and use of the existing bureaucratic state machinery like. In Ireland, just even if it's not a left-wing point, but like if you've got countries where coalitions happen, even if it's a right-wing coalition, the minority party will always get smashed in the next election. Right. Right? So regardless of whether we're talking about revolutionary strategy or even just talking about SOCDEM strategy, like in Ireland after the 2008 collapse and the IMF stuff came in, the Labour Party in Ireland, that was the party of James Connolly, you know, was a revolutionary. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was ever revolutionary, but the party of Connolly, it was doing really well in the polls. It was like 35 percent or something. It could have been the biggest party in the country, close to being it. And when the push came to the shove after the election was on, what did they do? Instead of staying on the outside and actually let the, the austerity shit be done by the parties of the right, they went into power to get seats. Right. And what happened to right. the next election? They were got decimated. I think now they're about 5%. Even if you're a sock dem, it doesn't make sense. Even if you're a right-wing party like the DUP in Northern Ireland with the Tories, it won't make sense. All the shit, shit flows downhill. Like, that's what they say in uh, The Wire, isn't it? Shit flows downhill. <laughs> and it's going to hit the small party. So this is more of a point to be made about actual revolutionary left parties that can exist in Europe in PR systems. I, I think there's two separate points that are being we need to kind of take here. One is that point and a secondary one is the one of being the, a majority party and taking power and managing the state. You well, know, these- I think they're two separate issues.
1: I would say, I would agree that, like, actually that these are the live, these are live political issues being addressed. I was a bit saucy and skeptical in the beginning of claims that all this is perfectly relevant, but that is certainly a relevant critique. I want to just put forward that again, he's talking like throughout the book, specifically about UK politics, and he's recently written a series on the US left. So this is definitely his advice also for first past the post systems, even though his examples are PR.
0: Yeah, like, I think this is more European, smaller states. Kind of, I, 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 but, uh, I mean,
1: I think, I think that's a good interpretation, but I don't think that's the author's intent.
4: But even well, if you um, have a left party and it has a majority electorally, it might not, you might not be able, even if you have a majority in a country, depending on, you know, the conditions of your country, it might not be advi- like advisable, advisable to, take to take power. power. Yeah, yes. unless you have like international, unless you have an international majority, like it's not really, like... or at least a continental
1: <laughs> block. Yeah, that's a point yeah, that's made yeah, down yeah. the line. Um, I did want to tap back to, but there are negative lessons too at the bottom of page one fifty nine. Actually, it's a, this is an important point with McNair, and it's it's a well motivated thing that he does, but it leads somewhere that I'm I don't totally like, not totally comfortable with. The Kautskians fostered the illusion of taking hold using the existing state. They turned the idea of the democratic republic for Marx and Engels was an alternative into a synonym for the rule of law constitutionalism. So th- this is the Kautskian move that McNair really feels like is, is like just an enormous, huge mistake. And this is why yeah. he goes so far to say that the bourgeois constitutional regime isn't democratic because well if you go to aristotle and you define democratic duh, 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 you know which
0: i could get into that but i think we should move on like that's a major critique of kowski this idea of constitutionalism right. it shows how how bad it was in you know in a post-war scenario the kind of constitutionalism of the liberals and the Kautsky kowski and party just was a disaster in post-world war one
1: I mean, it was, but... All right, fuck it. I'm going to say it, right? Like, where in history is there broad continental forms of democracy of the type that McNair is defining? Because this is exactly... This is the idea that, uh, you know, uh, the Baron Montesquieu, you know, put forward that, you know, Republican liberty can only be small. And that was accepted by thinkers like uh, even Rousseau, but, you know, especially the writers of the federalists and the whole point of creating this mixed some parts democratic some parts monarchical some parts aristocratic you know system was to be able to have something like a republic of course you know they didn't want it to be democratic at first but it later absorbs more and more democratic characteristics in certain regards over time like these monstrous bourgeois constitutional regimes are the closest thing to continental democratic bodies there it seems like there has ever been and so like i understand that they're not truly democratic but if you're i don't know hypothetically working in a tradition that proposed big republics that don't have a bunch of these liberties it might be very important if you say that having these liberties is, is a net benefit and that these liberties are the things that allow working class organization to happen, you should probably like systematically prefer organizational environments that allow you these liberties. <laughs> you should systematically prefer organizations that don't crush the working class tendency to, to organize, which you know McNair holds is a, a constant in, in liberal capitalism. It's just there's a real inconsistency here because these bourgeois constitutional regimes, and this is, again, Kautsky, right? These are the things that Kautsky was saying. These are the things that the opposition leader in Bolshevik Russia, uh, Julius Martov, was saying. And again, you know, the concept of the democratic republic in Marx and Engels is not the same as the Paris commune. You know, like at first, you know, the earlier Marx and Engels, when they're talking about advocacy of the Democratic Republic, they really are just talking about, you know, getting rid of the czar. They're talking about February, the February revolution. The proposed alternative to the constituent assembly was, you know, crushed by the people that made it because it was a silly, you know, it was too decentralized and ridiculous and whatever. And they didn't like how it was voting or whatever. So it's not like we have like a continental, you know, democratic Republican alternative to bourgeois constitutionalism. That's like a big
0: problem. We do. It's called the European union. <laughs> oh, babe. The European parliament sits there with people from every different country sitting down, I, making uh, decisions uh, oh, democratically. I mean, I mean I, I talk,
2: Tom, Tom, I, I agree with your, I agree with your point, Lexi. And so like, as far as like Stalinism compared to like bourgeois nominal liberty, you know, allowing the working class at least enough space to try to organize like is that's preferable, I, I get what you're getting at with that. But I think this argument that since there is like, unless I'm misunderstanding you, it seems like since, since there is no current form of continent wide democratic republic that there can't ever be one. What 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 point are you trying to get with that? You know what I mean?
1: There was so I'm not saying that there can never be one. I would not entertain abolition of the state or any of this shit if I didn't think there could never be one. Right. But if you happen to live in the real world where things that aren't demonstrated, you know, can't just be. You can't just rely on like metaphysical Hegelian transcendence. You know that history will pro- provide a way mm-hmm. forward when you need it. You know, there's got to be some, especially if you're a McNaughtonist, right? You got to prefigure the forms that are going to contain the workers movement and to be charitable in a safe way means to preserve the emancipatory, you know, movement, Mm -hmm. you know, those, those forms are going to look more like probably the United States than the Soviet union. They will,
3: they just will. Can I say something here? So I I, I think the, the issue is from my point of view is that McNair very uh, harshly attacks the uh, bourgeois political order. But when you actually look at like what the democratic Republic looks like for McNair, it's not that different from numerous existing States. Right. <laughs> so like, like I, I think that the, like I, I that's going to depend a lot from state to state, but I think like we're going to get into this later in, in when he actually like outlines what he means. But I I, I think that, like, the ferocity of his attack against the existing order is a little bit out of line with what he actually has in mind. And, yeah, and, 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 and what he has in mind is very much not just, like, you know, pie in the sky, like, the dialectic will deliver something incredible to us. It's like, oh, okay, like, that's what you mean? All right. What
2: Marx and Engels are getting at, right, with the idea of a democratic republic... I think in like the most charitable view we can give it right. And the McNair's interpretation as well is building on what exists in bourgeois society and making it better. Right. In that kind of like, dare I say dialectical way or whatever. And so I, I get that and I get how that's like a, an approved Personally, don't take him as much of an issue with him shitting on the, bureaucratic you know constitutionalist law regime or whatever the fuck he wants to call it even though it sounds very similar because my initial reaction in reading this was that it sounds so similar to the constitutional regime blah 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 right that I'm like what the fuck is he getting at but i understand why he's doing so much to distance himself from supporting the current liberal capitalist state for a lot of reasons and to me like one of the biggest is that like it can't be overstated that the liberal constitutional state is quite capable and has committed genocide as well. And I'm not saying this as somebody who makes excuses for Stalinism either. Like Stalinism is, is, they're just as bad as each other. Like, so (laughs) I I think this whole thing of like comparing them, like outside of the context Mm -hmm. of being like working class, being able to work organize, I don't really feel like it's a very useful exercise to say, liberal capitalism is better than stalinism or stalinism is better than liberal capitalism they're both such shit but the whole thing is dumb to begin with
4: i kind of like the cockshot model of like how to organize politically in a social society sortition Uh, random selection
3: we we like have sortition systems that are increasingly being part like are becoming part of liberal capitalist order right like, right. I, I, I know like, sortition was really important in Ireland recently, like XR has been fighting for sortition assemblies in the UK. This is this is becoming a, a part of the, the order as opposed to a, 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 an extreme alternative.
1: Right. And Cockshot is actually like a case in point of this tendency. He's the most uh, serious that Marxist that I've read about engaging with the democratic republican traditions and mining them for organizational form ideas in a really admirable way. You know I really appreciate his work on that. But you know, in the beginning of his book, he acknowledges that he believes that Stalinism was a form of Marxian socialism, right? And that oh, well, just uh, the you know, democratic checks were just replaced with a cult of personality. We're working in this you know, tradition, and again, McNair's working in a tradition in particular. Like his admiration for the Mandelites and the Pabloites in the splits, right with the Trotskyist splits. There's a wing of Trotskyists that you know split off from organizing with the communist parties under a theory of bureaucratic collectivism or state capitalism or what have you, and then usually through the bureaucratic collectivism one, some of them will line up with the bourgeois constitutional order instead. And so, yes, McNair wants to avoid that. He doesn't want to be Max Shackman. He doesn't want to be, like, a cheerleader for the invasion of Vietnam by the United States or something like because you know, because it's, you know, fighting the so- the Soviets or that's fighting, you know, bureaucratic collectivism or whatever. But the tradition he's actually in does prefer Stalinism <laughs> or at the very least, like, Khrushchevism.
2: I guess what I'm saying is that, like, I, I understand your desire to criticize, like, Make is like kind of uh, the, the hidden mustache in all of this. You know, the, I, I understand
1: that. There's a backdoor to the mustache.
2: Right. I understand that knee-jerk reaction. I just think that sometimes it's, you're a
1: little bit soft but on it's
2: constitutional not, liberalism.
1: Sure. I am a little soft because we're working in a tradition that is like essentially associated with something worse than constitutional liberalism. And that's, it's constantly understated. Yeah, I guess we shouldn't like do that. No, no, no. I think it ends up being a major strategic blocking point when we live in the option that if you value bourgeois liberty, if you value the ability for workers to organize, there is something superior about this kind of society on those strategic grounds. And we don't live in mustache world. And to be twirling mustaches is a strategic liability.
2: To be twirling mustaches is a strategic liability, but it's also a strategic liability because it doesn't exist. It clearly failed. But, Whereas I, I'm going to argue even that- Even if it, it did. I'm going to argue that it is also a strategic <laughs> liability to defend bourgeois liberal constitutional orders because that is the state that we are seeking to destroy. Remember, that is the state that we need to smash. But this is a book about talking to the
1: left, and this the left is twirling mustaches.
2: They're stupid, and we should constantly criticize them for that, but I don't think the answer- is to be a soft, it, we shouldn't be a liberal defences in in, 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 in in the fight against Soviet defenses. That doesn't make any sense.
1: But like the only existing democratic forms that we have to draw on are in this liberal constitutional order. We have to engage with these things in a different way. Sure, we want to smash like the military state. We want to smash the bodies of armed men. There are parts of the bureaucracy and there are parts of, R- bourgeois representation that would probably be retained in some future form of socialist utopia or whatever. Where else are we going to get these, like, like something?
3: I recently did, like, a, a class uh, about different constitutions. And when people looked at the, the Soviet constitution, they didn't look at all the you know, wonderful promises about, you know, equality and and access to basic material needs. They were just really creeped out by the the, the political tone uh, uh, of of duties to the state. I I think that that's always going to be, like, really important uh, in having any kind of communication with the public in general, because they haven't gone down this garden path of, like, seeing the good things in Marxism and then being surrounded by people who make excuses for bad politics uh, on the basis right. of the, of, the, of that.
4: As Lexi, you said, like, you were, like, commented on, like, Cockshot's line of, like...
2: Yeah, his hidden mustache.
4: Like, I think Cockshot makes a pretty decent point when he's, like... I mean, it's, like, a socialist economy with, like, b- like bad politics.
1: I, I think that he's making an artificial distinction between political and economic forms that's really basic to the critique of political economy.
3: Um,
4: I think it's not like totally determinants. You know, we still have like constitutional monarchy with, I mean, we still have like absolute monarchy with capitalism. Like it's not
1: like 100% determinants of
4: the politics.
1: If you use the word like Marxist or whatever, fine. But if you want to call it Marxian socialism, like of Karl Marx, no, Marx didn't accept the separation between economic and political forms when it came to this he thought of this as a bourgeois alienation of of things that are really part of the same thing and and so like i don't know maybe this is just like a hang-up of hating the way that the marxists like pave over marx's ideas i don't know if like
4: it has to do with like i'm not talking about what marx thinks but i think it's like sure sure yeah i think it's like the ussr was like the economy was like you know after the nep it was it was socialist.
1: So much the worse for socialism, but not Marxian socialism. I wouldn't say. Well,
4: I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it all out, like in the trash bin. I would throw the baby out with the bathwater, like
1: history um, would.
2: Yeah, but, I. I don't think it's really worth <laughs> keeping anything from that. I. I guess to me, mm-hmm. like I don't like the idea of. I, I. I'd rather just criticize and say like that is a failure of like Marxism and say that's not Marxism at all is kind of my tactic, you know? It's I feel like that's more honest than saying, oh, that's not real communism or
1: whatever, you know? It's, just, it's not Marxian. It's like Marxist. Sure, it's that's fair. That. It's just like, but Karl Marx, nah. Karl Marx wouldn't, Th- nah, wouldn't want that. That's yeah. not, not what he was talking about. You,
2: you, can, you, can, you can make that point. I think that's fair.
4: I think this is kind of like a viewpoint that's more common in, like, Western countries. You know, if you go to the countries where it was, you know,
2: it had its pluses. <laughs> The reason why I'm so queasy, right, is that when I hear talk about the benefits of the liberal constitutional order, I don't get nauseous because I disagree with it being better than Stalinism. I get nauseous because it leaves out so many people. You know, like all these liberties, like it's good for like working class organization, but I think of, you know, the people I've seen on reservations, like they didn't have access to these bourgeois liberties. I mean, really. For sure, they're
1: excluded. And, And this, so there's a, there's a, a debate between uh, Platypus and Mike mm-hmm. McNair, uh, Chris Coutron from Platypus. And McNair is, really does not want to frame this mm-hmm. in terms of extending bourgeois liberty. For the reasons that bourgeois liberty is zero sum, it always leaves people out. And I, ac- I do accept that. It's, it's true that you don't just want to say that, oh, we're just extending bourgeois liberty. We're fulfilling mm-hmm. the promises of the Enlightenment. Uh, abandoning that framework is important. My point is that we don't have any other forms to go on virtually.
2: Sure. And we can have this discussion in a way that's less memey, is I guess what I'm trying to think of. Because when you're memeing at the at the Soviet defenses about you know liberalism, that's going to be alienating to a lot of like, you know, workers who aren't white, honestly.
1: Do people Eastern. of color not value individual like the freedom point, where, where they course, have it? Like I'm not because I'm of course I am I am arguing for like a classless society, but like I don't want to destroy individual freedom yes. and, and we share a tradition with people that are fucking numb to individual freedom. Of
2: course. I'm not saying that people of color don't value individual freedom. Of course they do, but they didn't have indi—they didn't have any kind of freedom for a, lo- the, a long part of this country's history. And even still today, they didn't have that under liberalism. Okay. That's, all, that's all I'm trying to
1: say. I, I've, I fear this is a bit of a lover's quarrel. <laughs> I feel like I've inflamed <laughs> some passions. I, I don't think that I'm memeing. I think that there's like not a lot of examples of the kind of institutions that we're talking about outside of these bourgeois states that like, yeah, totally did genocide and stuff.
0: And that no, doesn't mean
1: I love genocide.
0: I don't think I, you love genocide. I just, I, I think, I think okay. Lexi, you might be a fascist.
1: <laughs> okay. Fair point. I am on Twitter. Uh, oh my God.
0: Oh
4: dear and I, I don't think you really need examples, you know, like relativity it made predictions based only on theory that were not that had no examples and like it's put, it's perfectly fine, like it's perfectly scientific to make uh non empirical you
1: know you can you yeah. can make yeah <laughs> no 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 for sure, but if that's the case, then this whole mode of doing politics is flawed because it's looking for prefiguration in the party to contain the workers' movement to create an alternative government, you know and if you're are you you talking about like Mike McNair's I'm talking about McNair but if this is your purview you have to systematically like actually not just in principle but in action prefer institutions with these liberties
0: On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our Network Sister Podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swamp Side Chats.